This is a special joint presentation of my interview on Current Affairs. Welcome, Current Affairs Birdfeed, to another very special, super special episode of the Current Affairs Podcast. This is Sparky Abraham, finance editor. I'm here today with Sam Yang. Sam Yang is a martial artist, a podcaster, a writer, and a philosopher. He hosts the Southpaw Podcast, which offers a mix of martial arts history, MMA commentary, interviews with everyone from socialist academics to leftist gym owners. I've been a fan of the Southpaw Podcast for a while. I'm really excited to have Sam on to talk about the weird cross-sections of lefty politics and combat sports. So thanks and welcome, Sam. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I think I told you that when you contacted me, it felt like the mothership was calling me. <laughs> yes, which blows my mind a little bit. I don't know. I, I, find, I still find it hard to understand that people like listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, when I was starting, I thought about like pitching story ideas to current affairs, mm -hmm. but I never did. But it was like kind of like, oh, but that would be like one of the places I would want to write for. And then I downloaded the editorial guidelines that y'all have. Mm -hmm. The writer's guide, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not because I wanted to, well, like I said, I was thinking about pitching, but I never ended up doing it. But that wasn't the reason why I downloaded that. I was downloading it because when I was starting my podcast, I was like, uh, we need, me and my co-host, we need some kind of format. So we didn't tailor it like one for one, but it was like, these are ideas that they use to frame what they do. We should have something comparable to cover MMA and even like how we do our interviews and whatnot. So we kind of use it as like, you know, like a backbone to like how we wanted to frame things. And it's like, oh, and also that you all had a writing guideline made me realize we need something too. We need some kind of guidelines that we want to follow. So I guess in all those ways, unconsciously and consciously, it had become kind of something that I looked to. So when you contacted me, then it did have that kind of like mothership calling me kind of vibe. Well, I mean, that's really flattering because I, I, I actually I, I really, really enjoy sort of the the broad range and the mix that you guys have on Southpaw, which, you know, like I said, I, I'm just thinking back to like, you know, the the Red Gym series was was really, really interesting when you were talking to to a whole cross section of, of gym owners you know, I think that you, you guys do the kind of um, fight previews and fight breakdowns, which are sort of like really MMA commentary focused, but then, you know, we'll mix in a little bit of the politics. And then you'll also do things like really long extended multi-part interviews with academics about anarchism and that kind of stuff, which is, which is just, yeah. a, it's a really nice mix. Can I ask you just about like a little bit of your personal history? Like, how did you, how did you come to be, to be kind of like a main fixture of the lefty martial arts scene? <laughs> well, you know, I, I've been on the left for a while, and then it all kind of happened in a five-minute text conversation, which I actually posted online a couple of years ago to show like how half-assed we were when we started this. But it was kind of like uh, at the time, you know, when you wanted to hear about MMA and listen to certain fighters, you wanted to get in depth with them. You only had Joe Rogan, and there was this frustration of like. You just want to know about some MMA stuff. You wanted to hear some of these fighters talk. You want to hear about some of the legends and what they're doing now, but you don't want Joe Rogan, but he had a monopoly. So I was like, you know, maybe we should start something. And so then we could cut Joe Rogan out of it. And instead of like bringing people in with the MMA and then having them stay for the right wing to conspiracy theorists like politics, let's do a socialist version of that. That's right. why like kind of similar to the Joe Rogan format, who we interview is like whoever I find interesting. 
So it's not like I'm only interviewing MMA fighters. It's basically very similar to the Joe Rogan experience in that we talk about MMA and then the people we interview most of the time have nothing to do with MMA. But it's like trying to, it's the same thing he does, but doesn't admit to, which is he takes MMA fans and then teaches them about right-wing politics. We're taking MMA fans and teaching them about about left-wing politics. Yeah. So that's kind of the impetus. And we thought like, okay, that's like a, like a very specific Venn diagram of, you know, leftists, people who are interested in MMA. So we're like, maybe only 50 people listen at most. But if that's all of leftist MMA, then we'll have a monopoly on that. <laughs> we'll right. own the whole thing. But over time, I, I realized it's much bigger than I thought. And it's interesting. It's not like I have a lot of followers on Twitter, but then it's like, the people who do end up following me is kind of surprising because then, you know, like I noticed you were following me, but like other people in the left sphere, media sphere that people would recognize, I think end up following me because it's like maybe they low key like MMA, but don't want to admit to it. They don't yeah. want to tweet about it, but they'll follow me and then just kind of get my take because they know it won't be like all cringy. And so even like when we do the MMA analysis, where it's like pure water MMA, where it's not too political, mm-hmm. it is political in that. We're always trying to be very like wholesome, you know, that's like a term that's popular amongst the left. I'm not trying to be cringy or edgy. I'm trying to deliver it in a way kind of like y'all do where it's not going to be offensive to anybody. You're being earnest. You're being a nice bag about it to some extent. But I mean, I I think it's it's also it's not non-political, right? Because you guys also are very you're very fighter focused, and you and you yes you take a you kind of zoom in on on the sort of labor dynamic between the fighters and and MMA as the as the management, right? Or UFC. Yeah, as it is always it is always like bottom up and fighter focused. Why I say it's pure water is just in that if you're an MMA fan and you hear that episode, you might not even notice that we're not using like cringy terms or we're not like using ableist terms or we're not like sexualizing the female fighters or we're not like saying, you know, typically things like that are very uh, racialized, like genetic freak, or he's a beast or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, so that is a political choice, but people don't notice the absence of it. Right? right. So it never added anything to the commentary. So when people are like complaining about, I can't say this or that, those are things that don't do anything. And if right. I remove it, you don't even notice. Right. So yes. And even like focusing it on the fighters and speaking about things from labor perspective, people don't notice either. Right. I mean, I think you're, it's it's funny, right? Like there is a, a this kind of relatively small Venn diagram between people who are interested in combat sports and then people who have who are interested in like lefty politics. Mm-hmm. Although maybe as you were saying, it's 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 a little bit bigger than than we might sometimes assume. You've talked about this a little bit on Southpaw too. There is something that's so, you know, I'm I'm I haven't been into combat sports for like a, a long time. Basically, like I've trained Brazilian Jiu Jitsu on and off a few different for a few different periods for for cumulatively probably like three and a half or four years. And I've, you know, I've found that like at the gym is a actually really productive place to kind of talk to people about stuff and talk to people about political stuff. You know, it's kind of this thing where like, I think one of the classic models of labor organizing that people like Jane McAlevey talk about a lot is, you know, the first thing you do is you get good at your job and you get people to respect you and to think that you're like a a reasonable person who they can trust to do things, to do what you say that, that you'll do. And then you just talk openly about what you believe in. 
And I found like a, a kind of a similar dynamic at gyms where like, even though, you know, most of the people there might be listening to Joe Rogan or might be like really into Sam Harris or something, you know, you can, you can build relationships really fast and you can build kind of like a mutual trust and respect. And then if you're just open about what you believe, I found people are, are really open to it. And I know one of the themes that you've hit on in, in Southpaw before about MMA is this idea of like, of like genuine curiosity, right? And I think this is something that you could say about Joe Rogan is that he is actually a genuinely curious person. Do you think that there's some actual connection there? Like, why is it that the sort of combat sports folks or the MMA folks are really kind of drawn to to this to to you know Joe Rogan's genuinely curious podcast as a as opposed to some of the maybe more like didactic podcasts? Mm -hmm. I mean, he even had a show called Joe Rogan Questions Everything or something mm -hmm. like that, which speaks to what you're talking about. I know you're you and Pete have recently been doing a series on MMT. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> for which we've gotten a lot of flack. <laughs> there, there is a little bit of overlap in that. What does that do? Right. Like it's like there's a certain economic orthodoxy, what you would call classical economics. Right. Mm -hmm. And MMT is questioning everything that you know and believe. Right. Mm -hmm. And MMA in similar interests people who want to question the orthodoxy that existed before about about martial arts. Yeah. But the thing is, especially I think if you're like uh, management class liberal, everything is so compartmentalized. Everything is so domain specific, right? There is this belief like you could be smart in one domain and not so smart in other domains. Whereas martial arts, especially because of a lot of its Eastern influences, I would say unconsciously or maybe subconsciously, there is this like idea that the way you do one thing is the way you do all things. And this comes from Taoism, right? So even like you know, right-wing chuds who know nothing about Taoism, it's somehow so ingrained into the pedagogy that they absorb that. So it starts out as a curiosity about martial arts, but it doesn't end there. Then that curiosity spreads to other places. So it, it makes sense then that somebody like Joe Rogan started out just questioning things about classical or traditional martial arts and it spread out to other things. And I would say over time, as he aged, he became much more dogmatic and and uh, orthodox in his thinking but he's still questioning things this just tends to be he questions the same things over and over like you know do trans people deserve to exist or something right. like that you know right well and this is and and not to not to kind of harp on the mmt thing but this is part of the the pushback that we've gotten on the mmt series and i think it's it's actually right which is you know there is a point at which you know just asking questions <laughs> is not like you, you know you have to you have to be willing to question your bottom-most assumptions, uh, which is actually, mm -hmm. it's really hard to do. And I think that that might be what folks get caught up on a couple times. You know, I think for me, another aspect of it is just that, like, when I train, it's very apparent to me that I am bad at it. And I have to kind of try to get better. It's a very, it's actually, it's a very humbling experience, right? Because you get your ass kicked over and over and over again, like, you know, five days a week, six days a week for years, just getting constantly beaten up. And you can't tell yourself that you don't suck at it. Like I, I, I can, <laughs> I can go through my normal life and convince myself that I'm good at basically everything that I do. But if I go to the gym, I can't convince myself that I'm like great when when people are beating me down. And I wonder if that's if that doesn't play into it a little bit. It's it's kind of like it, it's almost a little bit of forced humility. I think that forced humility also adds to a false confidence, right? Like hmm. where, especially with the right wing within martial arts, which is so prevalent, right? Like 
especially like anti-fascists know this and they'll contact me, contact me asking me questions. But like mixed martial arts and Brazilian jiu-jitsu have become two areas where a lot of far right do their recruiting mm -hmm. and they throw events or throw or, or create teams to try to recruit more. I think it really started first in Europe, but then now it's really caught on in uh, the U.S. as well. The reason why it caught on isn't because they started and then the right wing will come. It was more like the right wing were already there. Yeah. And so it became a, a perfect recruiting place to take him further. So I think that humility that you're talking about, people always bring it up as a way to say, now I'm like infallible. I went through that, so hmm. I'm smart. So now I'm like Sam Harris. I'm rational now. Hmm. Interesting. You know, and uh, that's a term that comes up all the time with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like right wing online or even in person. You'll, you know, maybe you're like hanging out and you'll overhear somebody talking about Sam Harris or how they love Dave Rubin or Ben Shapiro because they're so rational. Rationality, because there is some, they believe there is some kind of logic or rationality to submission grappling, especially, which there is. Yeah. But then they are overconfident in believing that now that they've they've gotten some mastery over that they've mastered all of logic and so they take it too far and so that initial like humility that they gain now becomes like this badge the story they tell of why they're smart right it's like oh look i'm humble i used to be ignorant and i used to suck at this thing and now i'm good and now i have this knowingness and and this knowingness transcends all things now so that's why like, there are so many of them talking about politics now. And you see this all the time, in, especially in MMA. Right. It's like this idea that, oh, you can, you know, if you spend a little bit of time, you, you can kind of get to a point where nobody can beat you. And, and so you feel yeah. like you've gotten there. That's interesting. There's a double-edged sword to it also that a lot of leftists don't realize. I, I all, often say like, there's things the MMA left knows that the regular left doesn't know. So it's that idea of humility, right? Mm -hmm. The double edges, one side of that humility story is bottom up politics. It's about like, I was weak. I didn't know anything. And then I got better. Like even in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I literally start on my back. And the whole point is the weaker person flips the person on top and submits them, right? Mm -hmm. So it has that bottom up element to it. But the other way I could interpret the same thing, that same humility tale is bootstrapping. Yeah, that's that true. I had nothing. And then I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Yeah. So it is the same story, but it's just like two different interpretations of the same story. Yeah. I mean, I think I feel like the bootstrap, the bootstrap impulse is, is common in a lot of sports and athletics, but it does seem to have kind of a particular flavor. Maybe not particular. Maybe I haven't seen it particularly for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, but like in martial arts in general, I'm thinking in particular of like Jackie Chan's book, um, which I didn't read. I, I read excerpts from it. But, you know, he seems like an interesting guy because because he has like a very you know, he came up through some really extremely traumatic circumstances, really, really like impoverished and, and disempowered and exploited in a lot of ways. And he kind of comes out of it with this mindset of like, stop whining. If I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. I think because they are their own like evidence, right? They are their own use case. Like, oh, I am proof that this works. But so what? You know, like, that doesn't mean it'll work for everybody. And also the fact that you are using yourself as the story proves that you are the exception, right? right? The whole point is to tell an epic story. It can't be epic if that's the norm. It's only epic if that is 
not the norm, if you're the outlier. Right. And that means then that for your epic story to exist, there has to be all these gates and this type of oppressive system that makes this very impossible to do, which makes you then, it's kind of self-congratulatory. It's almost like saying, I know how impossible it is, but look, I did it, which is, they sell it to you like we could all do it, but what they're really saying is I'm special. Yeah, well, you know, every good fortune is virtue and every bad fortune is bad luck, right? <laughs> this is just yeah. a lot of how everybody tells their story. But well, okay, let me let me ask you to do something that, that might be a little bit hard, which is help me kind of flip your dynamic a little bit, right? So like when you described starting Southpaw, what you said is that you wanted to start an MMA podcast that that would kind of that would both speak to the Venn diagram, but also like bring in people who are into MMA and, and, and help them get into left politics. What about the other direction, right? I think that the immediate reaction from a lot of lefty folks to MMA, to UFC, to really any kind of combat sports is one of is one of kind of immediate kind of knee jerk disgust or revulsion, right? Like it's it's extremely violent. It seems dangerous. You know, why do we want to have anything to do with this? Can you can you kind of make a case can, or or if not make a case, then talk about whether you think there's value to bringing lefties to combat sports or what you think we can get out of it? So a series I did in the past was about worker sports. I did it with two different academics, one focusing on the worker sport movement within the US and the worker sport movement in Europe. And you know what ended, how it ended was the rise of fascism and the Nazis and all that. But you had, especially in Europe, you had like millions and millions of people not just socialists, but people who are part of the worker sports movement. We have evidence that sports is very important. Like I, I was speaking to somebody on Twitter about it, but it's like, you would think it's, it's obvious that sports is one of the most important things in the social fabric. So we would utilize this tool. But I think because we were so beat up that you think about even early podcasts or alternative media, like Joe Rogan was one of the early people and even YouTube, it was a lot of like right-wing people first and then the left started coming in. And so what's the first wave, right? Like if we're, if we're going to do, you know how like, like there's like first wave feminism or first wave anarchism and second wave and third wave, then let's just talk about first wave left media. That had to be the educational ones, which they were. It was like a lot of educational ones first. And then when you had a certain number of those people, then you had to go a little bit further than just education. You had to get a bigger piece of the pie. Then the comedy podcast started, right? Mm -hmm. So those started and there's a lot of them, right? And then now within the last year, uh, a lot of sports podcasts started. Mm -hmm. I think for a long time, it was just one. It was just Dave Zirin. And then from Dave, a bunch of other podcasts have formed. So it, it only makes sense that when you, we, at the beginning, combining MMA or martial arts or combat sports with left politics is not important. So I wouldn't put that at the top of the priorities, but we get to a point where it is important for the next stage of uh, getting more people involved with the left. That's when you have to start doing the, the sports podcast and the sports media, which there's a lot of ones popping up. So like I would say, even in the last year, uh, like five more have popped up. And I think there's even like some sports podcasts that even... Uh, use the same name as us because they're not aware that there's already one existing, but but they're looking for puns, right? Mm -hmm, sure. <laughs> that relates sports to left politics, right? So that's all signs. And it's like, when I started mine, within this year, I got a lot of messages and DMs from people who were like, I was thinking about starting a combat sports leftist podcast. And then I realized yours. 
existed. So I was just like me and my friend Paul, we were just like a year ahead of that zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. But this year, we've gotten so many of those DMs. It was like coming anyway. Mm -hmm. We were at that like third or fourth stage of like left media where these types of niche media sources had to come up, right? Because now we also have like on Facebook, on left book, you have gaming groups just for leftists and, mm-hmm. and Twitch channels just for leftists and Discord gaming ones and anime clubs and pro wrestling. I would say pro wrestling was even before MMA. That was like after comedy and after like Dave Zirin, it was like pro wrestling. That was like the big one. So all of these things have to come up to get more of the population and more of the culture. Well, but what do you say to people who are like, you know, who are maybe already lefties, but they're like, holy shit, you know, why would I pay attention to to MMA? Like, why would you want to do this? Why, why, why do you spend so much of your time, you know, trying to like choke or apply enough pain to your friends to make them give up? Like, what is the, you know, what, what is appealing about this? There's a lot of vectors to help people find me. And, and there's a lot of different types of people who come to Southpaw. And they actually come from all types of like different left tendencies also. But I would say like the people who listen to me are like, unlike other combat sports podcasts or even like other podcasts, I would say like, cishet white men would not be like the majority Mm -hmm. they would be as one group i guess maybe the majority but they would be like let's say 30 percent based on just some of the the stats i've looked at so then i have a large portion of the listenership that are women but that are also like non-binary and trans and also people of color and also international people of color Mm -hmm. so why should they pay attention well how did these people come to southpaw Did they come just because they love MMA or combat sports? No, because unlike other sports, this is why people really need to pay attention. Unlike football and unlike baseball, MMA, martial arts, combat sports is also a form of self-defense. MMA probably, if not using any weapons, probably the most effective and is constantly tested within a cage. So you see like materially how well it works, right? Now we could get into like about the rules and such, but it's like the the least amount of rules that we have compared to anything else, right? So then for marginalized groups, this is a form of self-protection because their life is at risk for just existing. Not just marginalized groups that are like, let's say, Black or trans, but I would also include people with disabilities. A a lot of my listeners also are people who have some disability or who are on the spectrum, who are neurodiverse. So for them, this is like self-protection. So I think that is a component where people initially might not be interested in combat sports and then they get involved with, you know, I don't know, Black Lives Matter or protests. They get involved with like uplifting lives of marginalized people. And then they realize it can't be just about protests or whatever. Like immediately we need some way to protect them. And then this is where self-defense comes in, a community protection. And then that's how a lot of them also end up in MMA because they find that these things are also effective. So Poo-pooing that is almost like a a privilege to say their lives are not in danger. And it is. There's also, I mean, I'm sure there's also part of that dynamic too, where people come to, people come to MMA for purposes of self-defense, but then also find that it's very fun and entertaining, right? And and, and, and come to like watching it for more than just that and doing it for more than just that. Yeah. That's the other part about self-defense or any type of like pedagogy. If it's not fun, people aren't going to do it. So it has to have fun in it. It can't be just like work. Otherwise, it's like uh, learning a language. Defending yourself or fighting requires fluency. Fluency requires practice. And you're not going to practice something if it's boring, right? So it has to have that kind of game element to it, that fun element to it, 
that camaraderie element to it. So I think when they first try it, maybe their initial intent is just for self-defense and then they end up liking it and they find it fun. And then a lot of times, like whatever they don't like about that gym, you know, they'll start their own collective to remove the elements they don't like, which might be like misogyny, sexism, stuff like that, and then form their own collective where it's just about those elements that they like. Yeah. And I think this is one of the interesting things about your show too, is is the time that you spend talking to different gym owners, talking to different talking about different gym structures, um, and and kind of exposing the, the wide variety of of different sorts of cultures within gyms, which I think from the outside maybe is isn't totally apparent to people. I think that maybe it was via your Twitter that I saw a thread recently, uh, kind of pointing out all of the sort of like right-wing neo-Nazi dog whistles in like a particular chalkboard drawing at a gym. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That was like an actual gym. Yeah. From, like just a week ago. Right. Yeah. Can you remind me what those were? They were like uh, some like Nazi runes and stuff. So it was the runes. I don't know all the technical terms, but it was like a lot of these like before the Nazis came up with the swastika, they used all these like kind of rune mystic symbols. And it's like a lot of those. Uh, mixed in with like the atom waifen. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but the you know the yeah, yeah. the nuclear kind of symbols, the 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 SS bolts, the death's head on just like a little doodle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. basically I, whoever did it was like trying to show, just trying to fit every dog whistle onto a thing. And I think what's what's traumatic for some people is like they look at that and then have it explained, and they're like, oh shit. I've seen some of these things, but I never like thought to pay attention to it. Right. And I mean, it's it's really interesting. It's interesting to me, at least, how how these kind of really gnarly political valences can fly under the radar. You know, you look from the outside and, and a gym looks like a gym looks like a gym. Right. And even if you kind of start going, to, even if you, you know, do your free week trial or whatever, and then you like become a member and it's not always exactly apparent what sort of culture you're getting into, especially if you're just starting. And then it you have this sort of the kind of like creep and, and seeping and like if you stay in it for long enough, then it starts to <laughs> you know, it's it's almost like the the reverse side dynamic of, of the sort of ability to do politics at gyms that we talked about earlier. Which again, I think that all of this it becomes apparent to you once you've been a, a member of, of one or two gyms. But but for people who are not involved in this world i think that it's it's just it would be totally unexpected yeah i get like a lot of pushback from people who are not even martial artists who just come to me with some kind of cartoonish stereotype of what they think martial arts is based off of the karate kid and so then they they're like i see all the stuff you're posting about but that's not possible martial arts is like antithetical to that so which actually speaks to the amount of like how media shapes our reality and it even creates like false memories we never even experienced these things but this person is so sure that this is how martial arts is even though they've never even taken a martial arts class right so they're just like it's like what david hume talks about the is ought fallacy which is like they talk about how it ought to be and then they confuse it for how it is so i don't know how to like combine those things for them but that's not just like people outside of martial arts who do this. It's also a lot of gym owners who perpetuate a lot of these fascistic behaviors by denying it because they keep talking about what martial arts ought to be. And I think uh, I, I've tweeted about this also. Martial arts isn't inherently left-wing, but with great effort, it can be. So 
they're assuming that it already is a certain way that it's like this rainbow coalition that it's like this this utopia where nothing nothing matters just your merit right and it's not that yeah that's how it ought to be i agree but it's not that so in saying that it is already that there's so much erasure happening and there's also a lot of privilege and bigotry in that you're in a place where you never face it and it's true a lot of gym owners are like not only white men but they're also very big white men. So they don't even know about you as a student might end up going to a gym being that small person in jujitsu. But a lot of the gym owners are not the small person. A lot of the people who end up owning gyms are like the person who was always the big person in class. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. I, I mean, there's also it, it seems like there there's also a bit of a nuance that I think people can miss too, right? Because you could have like something that for many intents and purposes, like looks like a relatively you know, quote unquote, progressive gym or something, right? It could be a diverse gym. It could be, you know, you could have any number of factors, but they're still going to have sort of like brag on the website about doing classes for police and, you know, having like Navy SEALs and stuff train, right? There's this kind of element or I'm thinking of, um, you know, like Jamie Kilstein has his podcast and he sort of holds himself out as like a lefty kind of guy. And his jujitsu podcast is like sponsored, you know, talks constantly about being sponsored by um, Jocko Willink and like all the terrorists that he's killed. It's <laughs> like kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, crows yeah. about that all the time. There's like this weird, uh, a, a weird kind of like acceptance of violence and militarism and imperialism. That's that's this sort of knee jerk, even among the the quote unquote, more progressive gyms and more progressive people. And I would even say with him, right, people who are not in martial arts might remember Jamie from like the left media sphere as well. Right. Uh, I don't know if you remember, he had his yeah. own podcast back in the day. Yeah, he had his own podcast back in the day. And I remember there was some it was something like he was I don't know, there was a, there was some issue with him and women. That's basically all I remember of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't speak to what his personal politics are or how he would define them. But. I guess the juxtaposition is like, if you are from the left and you remember that, then it's like, that shows you like the Overton window of BJJ, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and that who becomes the left voices in BJJ, which is is true. A lot of like people who would be centrist in regular life end up being like the progressive voices in BJJ and martial arts. Actually, even like traditional martial arts, all of martial arts, period. Because you look at even somebody like Chuck Norris, who is so far right. Yeah. Like somebody who just would be a centrist or even like center right could end up appearing left wing or progressive right. in the martial arts space. Uh, as far as Jamie, he maybe he he's changed a lot. I don't know. I'm just saying that like that even if he hadn't changed, it could still appear that way. Yeah. Well, and it's just inter- I, like I find it interesting. You know, I, I have I've listened to his jujitsu podcast like a little bit, not a ton. It does seem like he's kind of trying to to build himself as, as sort of a, a more again, quote unquote, progressive jujitsu podcast. Um, but it's just very interesting, right? Because I think that he will talk fairly well about sort of like racism and, and police violence. And, and it seems like he actually does get a little bit of flack for that from, from his podcast fans. But then again, will like absolutely tout extreme forms of US imperialist violence. He <laughs> just in like his little yeah. ads for his sponsors. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to like, I guess this is like where having some kind of like left tendency can help mm-hmm. where you're like, okay, how am I approaching this? What are my beliefs, right? Yeah. A lot of it, I think for a lot of these burgeoning progressive 
voices within martial arts, they haven't really thought about that. They just go with their knee-jerk reaction of like, racism bad, this is bad. And they go with that, but they don't think about like consistency of thought. When I say theory, I don't mean like necessarily you got to read like Bakunin or Marx or anything like that. I mean like, is what you're saying consistent from beginning to end, like from this topic to that topic? Or do you only have like a certain framework that's domain specific about racism, but then this other thing, you're reactionary, right? And I think a lot of these voices that I see on not just Twitter, but like Instagram or YouTube or whatever, there's, yeah, there is a lot of inconsistency. Yeah. You're saying start from principles, basically. Yeah. And I think that is why like the writer's guideline, like thinking about that was so important for, for me and for our podcast was like, I want it to be consistent. I didn't want to be like domain specific where I'm talking about this one way and then I'm talking about this other thing and interpreting that in a reactionary way. Right. And that's another lesson I got from watching Joe Rogan in that there are some things you could seem like lefty about, but he's very domain specific about it. Right. Especially like back in the day, it was about marijuana. And then because he didn't have a consistent framework or maybe his consistent framework was more right wing or libertarian free market. He made some exceptions, but his overall ideas were more to the right. Right. I want to ask you a little bit about about the UFC um, on a couple of different levels. So again, back to like a, a little spot of biography, right? I, I have been feeling like I need some kind of sports fandom in my life for a little while. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, like I've been, been into jujitsu for a while. Maybe I should try to like get into the UFC. And... Honestly, I've been kind of struggling. <laughs> I think I've been struggling for a few reasons. Like, number one, you know, it actually is, it, it's quite hard to watch sometimes for me. And part of me wonders, you know, I think the part that I find hard to watch is is the striking when they're hitting each other. I don't mind watching the grappling. And, and so maybe part of that is just because I haven't really been involved in striking sports very much. You know, I think I might have found the grappling harder to watch before I kind of understood what it what it actually felt like to get choked, which isn't that bad. <laughs> um but, you know, it does seem so on the one hand, like I have kind of failed to to actually get myself into it. And then on the other hand, as you talk about on the podcast a lot, you know, the UFC as an organization and the power structures within the UFC can be really, really, really exploitative in a lot of complicated ways. And I wanted your thoughts on both of these issues, right? Like, I guess it would be really, really cool if you could, you know, give us I don't expect that a lot of current affairs listeners, I mean, I'm sure some, but not, probably not most are going to be UFC fans or even necessarily well-versed in what the issues are here. But if you could give us kind of like like a broad overview of, of what is the UFC and what do you see as kind of like the main issues? And then how do you as a fan still engage and love the sport within this context of, of kind of extreme exploitation? you know, and <laughs> probably some of you all are NFL fans out there. So like, listen to that. <laughs> I'm sure this is going to apply uh, outside the UFC as well. I mean, and that's the fun part of it is trying to wrap our minds. Because if you think about if you just watch UFC, it's almost like a sport from another planet. It is so alien to our normal life. Right. And when it first came out, it was like that. What is this? Is this real? Right. And there's still some of that left. So as especially as socialists or, or progressives or people on the left, trying to wrap our minds around this thing. I think that in itself can be kind of interesting and just like a philosophical question, like in an anti-capitalist or post-capitalist society, would it still exist? I say yes. And I would say there's nothing to say that it wouldn't exist. What is the UFC? 
the UFC is not MMA. MMA is a combined art of combining all these different martial arts and then applying it holistically. So me as a practitioner, I'll take elements from all these different arts and apply them together in a way that I feel is most effective to accomplish whatever I'm trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. It could even just be like trying to hold the, hold somebody down so they don't hurt themselves or hurt me, right? I could apply it in a gentle, like non-submission grappling way, but like a, a care-informed way where like uh, the actor Ed O'Neill had a great story about how like he got into some kind of argument with um, somebody and then the person got physical and he just held him in his guard and held the person's head down so he can't headbutt him and he couldn't punch him until other people showed up and they could break it up, right? So you could do it in this gentle way where this person you might see again, you don't want to necessarily hurt them or you might not necessarily want to hit them. So in this way, then you, I, I could see you again because I didn't commit this great violence to you. So there is the art of mixed martial arts. UFC is not mixed martial arts. That's, that's the thing that I think makes it difficult for people because if you associate it or overlap it as being one and the same, then it makes it very hard to appreciate MMA. Right. UFC is a promotion and it is very similar to the WWE. And just like the WWE is in pro wrestling, UFC is an MMA. But just like the WWE operates as kind of a monopoly, the UFC also operates as a monopoly. So it is the biggest promotion. They are both the biggest promotions in their industries. And in that way, then they control a lot of their individual industries because like even smaller promotions, maybe an indie show in pro wrestling or a smaller organization in MMA might want to placate to the rules of the UFC or how they judge things or how they do things because I want to be a feeder show for the UFC and I don't want them to try to destroy me. So it becomes this like top-down tyranny. So it does have a lot of sway in the, the sport, in the, the industry, the business, if, if you want to use the pro wrestling term of MMA. So it has a lot of say in the sport, the combat sport element of MMA. So yeah, if you know a lot about WWE, it is very similar to that. Even in like how you decide who gets a title shot or how you decide where the rankings are. Because unlike other, unlike boxing, let's say, your popularity is just based on your popularity. If people like you, people like you, right? Whereas in UFC and WWE, it matters more if Vince McMahon likes you or Dana White likes you. So it's not just like this promotion that controls everything, but also especially one person within the promotion controls and has so much say over everything. So that is the UFC, which is kind of like, there's actually an antitrust case about it, but it is this monopoly within the MMA combat sports sector. It is the most powerful promotion. And it is so powerful that it can just squeeze other people other promotions out, or it could buy them up, which it also has. It has squeezed people, squeezed other promotions out, and it has also bought other promotions. That's the UFC. L and let me get, let me kind of get into, just in case folks aren't, aren't totally familiar with, with some of these structural similarities that you're talking about, right? So you're saying like UFC is very similar to WWE. I, I don't think you're saying that like in the same way that WWE matches are, are as some people call them, quote unquote, fake, right? There, there is an element of, of, of falseness in that the people aren't actually fighting. And a lot of times the, I mean, they're fighting, it's still very athletic. Like it's obviously, it's obviously still painful, but there's often not a question about who is going to be the winner at the end of it, right? It's more of a performance. 
I don't think UFC fights are, are like, you're not saying that UFC fights are like that. No, but, but when you look at pro wrestling or you talk about like this uh, construction, yes. it's not just about the, the match itself that needs to be fixed for it to be pro wrestling or, or fixed in general. It's how you can match people up too. Right. So in uh, March Madness, right, there's no booker. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the the way it ends up is the way it ends up based on rankings. Mm. Right. And sometimes it might start out random, but then over time, it's all based on rankings. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of team sports are in boxing. Yes, you could try to have these mega fights that does happen, but ultimately ranking still matters. You, see, you have to have like this. You have to eventually fight the number one contender or you have to vacate your title. Whereas in MMA or specifically UFC is much more constructed, the matchmaking or who fights who let's say how you match up the teams is much more constructed. Right, right. And so it it almost seems like maybe in boxing or in other sports, it's a little bit more decentralized, right? You've got kind of your your ranking and rating body, but then the individual fighters or the individual teams sort of have a lot more power and agency. Whereas with the UFC or with WWE, it's kind of all crammed into one, right? Like everybody's got to be yeah. affiliated with this one group and the person at the top of the group gets to decide who gets to fight whom and that's going to be based on who they like and, and you know, who's <laughs> who's basically like most politically or monetarily valuable for them at any given time and it gets really ugly and hierarchical. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's like uh, if basketball, like if the commission and the teams, the team owners were all the same organization. Right. Meaning... There were no owners. The commission also owned every team. That would be more like the UFC. And that would also be like the WWE. There is no third-party commission. They are also the commission. Right. And, and, and talk to me a little bit about, about sort of the violence of it. And if, if you can kind of put it on a scale, you know, you hear people talk about this stuff like, oh, you know, which is more dangerous, boxing or football? Which is more dangerous, boxing or or MMA, right, or specifically in the UFC, because I think it makes a difference depending on what the rules are. And I think people do kind of cringe when you see some of these clips from the fights. I think that the UFC plays up the kind of violent brutality of it. You know, is that sort of a valuable aspect here? Is that a marketing game? Is that something that that we should understand in, in some broader context? Is it something that we should enjoy watching fights despite? What do you think? I think the violence, especially if you're on the left, uh, depending on how violent it is, it is something like that you watch in spite of the violence. Mm-hmm. I think over time, it's become more and more violent. Uh, people might bring up how violent it was in the past, but it was like, the, the clips they show you are the violent parts because you're not, you can't go back in time and rewatch that thing and nor did you even pay attention back then because you, it's promoted as being even more violent back then, but also back then people were complaining about how boring it was. So which is it? Was it like really violent or was it boring? And some fights ended up being violent, but they were boring at the beginning. And some fights from beginning to end was boring. And I think a lot of that had to do also with the rule set. It was violent in that it was very bloody, but it wasn't violent in concussive punches to the face. So what I mean by that is like, the, yeah, people were punching to the face back then, but there weren't gloves and there weren't rounds. So there was nobody to go back to, to like put Vaseline on your face or reduce the blood. Whereas now there is. 
So it actually looks less gruesome now, but in a way, to your point, it is more violent now than it was back then. So it is becoming more violent. And a lot of that happened to these, that happened because of these perverse incentives, um, which is like, first of all, you only get half your purse if you fight. You get the other half if you win for most fighters, especially if you're starting out. If you're a star, you have like this guaranteed purse or you'd have to negotiate for that. But a lot of fighters, they fight where it's like, half to show and then the other half to win. They call that a win bonus, but to me, it's like the only reason person fights for that is like they're agreeing to a deal where they see I, I'm going to make $10,000 a fight, but it'll be like broken up into five and five. Does that make sense? So you got that bonus and then you also have the KO bonus because there was all this complaining about how boring it used to be because it was grappling, right? It was very grappling intensive, which if you wanted just efficiency and what works the best, it would be mostly grappling anyway, but they wanted to remove that element. So they added the KO bonus. But after like the NFL and these documentaries and reports about CTE, they renamed it. So now it's a performance bonus and <laughs> it's the fight of the night bonus, but it's the same bonus. It's yeah. still about KOs. Right. Then you look at the winners of these things and it is, it is the fighters who get the knockouts. So then that incentivized people to fight in a way where they're just going to throw haymakers. They're just looking to knock people out because they're not making very much money. So that fight in the night bonus, that performance bonus, that win bonus all matters so much more. So uh, th this is an example of like something being fixed. Yeah, the fight isn't fixed where it's predetermined, but you're using capitalism to create an outcome that you want. So I, I'm saying that is still orchestrated and that is still very much like WWE, which other sports, they have their problems, but not to this extent. And to your earlier question about why should people pay attention to uh, MMA, I think that's a two-part question in that why should you specifically pay attention, meaning uh, people in the left media. I think everybody in left media and every journalist should pay attention to MMA because MMA is an example of where you have this control group, where you see what a sport looks like or what a workplace looks like without any union and without any protection. Then you look at boxing, they have the Ali Act. So now you can see a similar sport with a legislative protection, right? So now boxers make more and they can represent themselves and they can use free agency. Then you look at team sports that have unions and, and they are the most protected. So you have like this way to, for just for labor reasons, you could compare what it looks like where it's like pure anarcho-capitalism versus like uh, a legislation versus unions and how different all three of these things are. And I think that's very valuable to everybody on the left. Understanding that, that's like a, a been a way for me to explain unions to just, they don't even need to know MMA. If they just know anything about sports, then I could get a long way with them, get very far with them in explaining why unions are, are important and how valuable they are. So I feel like to people who are in left journalism, they need to pay attention to this because it's the only place where you can make this comparison. And for the rest of us, then you can actually see what it looks like when it doesn't have any protection. Right. That's a great pitch. I think what you were saying about the KO bonus struck me as really kind of funny, right? Because it seemed to me like the, the original premise of UFC, like going back to the early days, <laughs> it was really like the first UFC when it was like pitting all of these fighting styles against each other, right? It's like, okay, we're going to try to figure out, you know, what is the, the most effective way to fight to win? And that, of course, is always going to be kind of a cost-benefit analysis. And then it seems like they've kind of discovered, oh, well, you know, actually the most effective way to fight to win 
ends up mostly being submission grappling, and yeah, people don't really like to watch that. So we're going to have to introduce some kind of economic incentive to get them to just try to punch each other, <laughs> which is like, you know, it's it's it seems like a very... Uh, that feels ironic based on what the UFC started out at, with its uh, with its purpose as. Yeah. And for people who watch it, in spite of all that, I think it's just as much as they've done to screw it up, there is a certain level of like self-expression in martial arts. And I think if you've taken Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the reason why there's this camaraderie is because after I spar with you or roll with you, there's a sense of knowingness. Like, I really know you now and you really know me and you really know yourself. And in mixed martial arts, it goes even further. A lot of fighters will say, even if they say nothing else philosophically, will say, in fighting, in mixed martial arts, I feel like I really know myself, right? I, I know who I really am, how I can like self-express myself, right? And so the moves that they're deciding in real time. So there is the violence of it, but it's like, what am I going to do? I have all these options. So I could be overwhelmed by the options. I could try to take this person down. I could try to punch them, kick them. And even in punching and kicking, that is like 20 choices of punches, 20 choices of kicks. And, or I could run away. I could back up. I could faint. There's all these elements to it. So watching how they navigate through all these decisions, how they self-express themselves, how their mind is working, what they're seeing, there is like this decision theory element to it. Like you appreciate how they're thinking this through or you even appreciate like their athleticism or their instincts you could tell they didn't think anything but they picked the right thing just because their instinct was correct or the other way you realize oh they they were overwhelmed with decisions to make and they froze or they completely made the wrong decision and the, the other person countered that so there is this game element that you still appreciate i think you don't appreciate that element until you watch it for a while until you gain the fluency otherwise it looks like chaos but then after you do, then you realize like there's so much more to it. There's, there is still this like decision-making, free will, human expression, freedom. And also you have to always remember and keep into your analysis. Like you always have to price in that this is consensual. So let's go back to like football, which is also very violent. And there's a lot of brain damage. A woman who's been like sexually assaulted doesn't all of a sudden go to try to find like uh, some flag football game even, you know, which isn't as violent to try to heal. Whereas a lot of times in martial arts, a lot of the women that come in, they're not coming in to prevent some kind of assault. They're coming in after the assault has already come. So there's that element of it where Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or in particular Muay Thai becomes this like form of self-expression and they reclaim themselves because they want to not only no longer be afraid of that physicality, but that the, the physicality is consensual. That unlike before where I was powerless, I am choosing to do this. This bruise on my hand, this bruise on my forearm, this bruise on my face didn't happen this time because of assault. This happened because I was training this art. There's a very different context to a bruise on your face from assault to sparring that you decided to put yourself through. And that you came away from it knowing that, oh, I can handle that, yeah. right? I think uh, even like people on the left get so conditioned to buy like why the right wing like MMA. They think that's the only reason to appreciate MMA. And so they bought into the explanation of MMA that the right has set. And then they're like, that's not for me. But you, we can't accept it on their terms. It's just like uh, some leftists have like tried to argue you can't accept logic from their terms. 
logic is not a right-wing thing, right? We have to claim our own logic, right? Same thing with just sports in general. We can't let them claim what sports is. Sports is as much ours as, as it is theirs. So I think that's another reason why people listen to us or, or watch some of our analysis is because we don't want to frame it in those right-wing terms. We want to, instead of glorifying the violence, we want to talk about the, the other aspects of it that are very quite interesting. And, and for, especially if you speak to the women who do MMA, it is very empowering for them. And you look at somebody like uh, Falon Fox, or there's a lot of trans people in the trans community who also train in MMA because there's like this, this self-empowerment and this ability to, to exist in your skin and, and in your space. And I've also talked about how like enrolling, it is this like transcendent experience, especially like at the beginning where when you're rolling around, you can't tell where your body is ending and that other person uh, begins. You can't even tell which is your limb. Sometimes you're like grabbing something and you think it's their arm, right? And it's actually your own arm. You're so confused and entangled. And when you get really into the zone, it's almost like you don't exist. You have like an out-of-body experience. Then you realize, is this my body? What am I? Am I my body or am I something else? There's several people in the Southpaw community who have told me that rolling in Brazilian jiu-jitsu is how they realize that they were trans. Hmm. It's because, I mean, I'm, I'm a cishet man, so I can't necessarily speak to their experience. But having rolled a lot, there is this like this transcendental experience where you no longer identify with your body. This I'm transcending myself. It, it sounds weird for people who've never rolled, but if you have rolled, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it is this experience where it could take you, if you allow it to, to deeper left politics, or it can make you go the other way. But it is this experience where it's unlike anything you've felt before. And it is like kind of this thing where you are not your body. Yeah. And you're not quite sure what you are. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's, it's, it sort of shuffles, it shuffles your notion of self is how I, is how I think I would describe it. Right. Like, at least for me, it kind of is a way for me to, 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 it feels like just leaving my head for a little while in a way that, you know, beyond these kind of broader realizations and, and epiphanies is actually just really helpful in day-to-day -day life, right? Like I've had the experience where I've just felt like very stressed about a conversation I have to have with my mom or something. And I put it off for a couple of days and then like I go to the gym and, and like after an hour and a half, I'm like, oh yeah, no problem. I'll just call my mom right now on the way home, <laughs> right? It's just like, it kind of, uh, you know, this is obviously is a much smaller example, but I, I, I think it's on the same spectrum in, in terms of, yeah, it, it, it is a, it, it is an extremely out of your head activity where you can't really be thinking about yourself. You can't really be, you know, situating or creating a narrative for yourself while it's happening in any meaningful way, right? You're just, you're just in it. Yeah. And when you're rolling, you're not thinking, oh, I am a white man right now. Right. You don't even have a chance to think about that. You don't even know what you are right there. Right. You're just like thinking one move at a time. I'm going to grab this lapel. I'm going to, I'm going to try to shift a little bit to my left. It becomes so like primordial and basic. Right. I think that I'm glad you brought up consent because I thought I think that consent, you know, one of the one of the earlier Southpaw episodes that I listened to, you guys talked about consent quite a bit and, and it really kind of brought me in. I don't think that I had really conceived of of what I was doing and doing martial arts as being kind of rooted in the idea of consent. But as soon as you say it, like yes, of course, right? Like this is the this is the first, the most basic, the the most important, the only important rule of the entire experience and particularly in like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where you're actually 
you know, in in sparring with someone else, you know, it's the idea of the tap, right? Either person can tap at any time. And the second someone taps, you stop. That's it. It's over, right? The whole thing is is a constant process of consent. There's no like, oh, you're in it for this period of time, no matter what. It's that everyone is doing it for exactly the, the period and in exactly the way that they're comfortable with. And anyone can express discomfort at any time. And it's done. And even participating, right? Even if you're doing a traditional art, I can't spar with you until like we both bow. Mm -hmm. And that's like, okay, we have permission to do this. I can't just grab you and just start punching you in a dojo, right? Like, I mean, that even in a very right-wing martial art, that would be very unusual. Mm -hmm. We always have to gain consent. In Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it would be like, hey, you want to roll? And you wait for yes or no. Mm -hmm. And then even then, you got to get consent again. You got to slap hands and bump fist. Okay, now we're rolling mm -hmm. for real. And then at any time, you could pull your consent by tapping. You're like, okay, we're done. Yep. Right? And then if you look at the sport of combat sports, I would say there's a lot for people to learn from about consent because I, I would even say a lot of progressives have a hard time wrapping their mind around what consent really means. Meaning if I engage in a fight and I, I consented to be in it, right? At any point of the fight, I could pull my consent, meaning consent isn't static. Mm -hmm. I can change my mind. I don't owe anybody anything. I am a free individual. Mm -hmm. Consent is fluid and it could be pulled at any time. But not only can I pull it, my coroner can pull it and the referee can pull it and the doctor can pull it. So that means there can be a point where I'm not in my right frame to consent to anything. Then that means that other people should be able to decide that for me as well, right? So this idea that consent is not only fluid, but I can be in a position where I am altered. I'm not in a rational state. I can't think for myself. I can't decide for myself. Right. It might be consent under duress. I could be too young to decide. There are all these procedures priced in to know when my consent is valid or invalid. Right. And in that circumstance, it, the responsibility devolves on other people in order to see that and and to do the right thing, which I think that like, yeah, in, in other contexts and like the context of sexual assault, I think there are a lot of people who would kind of you know, push back or balk a little bit at that idea. It, and nonetheless, they perfect they understand it perfectly well when it comes to when it comes to combat sports, which is, I guess, a little bit a little bit sad, but also telling. I mean, here's another element is I don't have to say no. So if I'm a fighter and say you're the ref, you look at me and you ask me, do you want to fight? And I say nothing, then nothing is not the same as yes. It's not no, but it's not yes. Then if not yes, then the fight stops, right? So that's the other part of consent that people don't get. It doesn't have to be no. You don't have to, even if you don't take away consent, not saying yes or committing to consent. If the consent is not explicit, then it is not consent. Maybe you don't even have like the right look or it took you too long to say yes. The error is always on the side of like, you have to emphatically, it has to be a hell yes. Right, there can't be any question. It doesn't even need to be a no. And I would say then combat sports is aware of that at least in, in the combat sports setting, aware of what consent is and has defined it much better than a lot of the courts have, than a lot of like, you know, a lot of people's moral compasses have. Absolutely. I, I guess I just wanted to ask, I, I was thinking about asking you a little bit about, about kind of hierar the ideas of hierarchy and legacy and the apparent meritocracy that maybe is not really a meritocracy in, in combat sports and in jiu-jitsu particularly. And then I thought, you know, that might lead us into talking about the Gracies a little bit. But I don't want to put you on a spot like, I don't want you to feel like you have to talk about something that, that you think is going to piss people off or piss people off or something. No, it's fine. Actually, it connects to something you asked earlier, or maybe you were just like 
postulating this? Like, why is martial arts so right wing, right? And you talked about even imperialism. So you have to think about how martial arts was brought to the U.S. and North America in general, and the context in which it was presented. It was brought over by the U.S. military. It was brought over by GIs, right? So whatever framework or context it was, we lost that, and it was presented to us through the imperialist lens. And a lot of times they catered to military and police, right? If you want to see where the most amount of martial arts dojos are, regardless of the art, Go find where a police station is. Go find where military bases are. And that's where you'll find most of them. So then it's like martial arts is influenced by the military and police because a lot of them also end up being instructors. And then the two cultures just kind of like symbiotically go back and forth and inform each other. So you'll find like, you know, martial arts geese, or maybe not martial arts geese anymore, but martial arts like shirts, like that say, you know, like, oh, I, I trained this art that uses like the Rhodesian camo. And if anybody knows about like an anti-fascists, like who, who are involved in anti-fascism, Rhodesian camo is like a dog whistle for white supremacy, right? From, from Africa. So you'll see that in military apparel stuff that are like lifestyle geared. And you'll see that in martial arts stuff that is lifestyle geared. Uh, they just inform each other. So that type of marriage is what set the tone for this type of fascist, imperialist, right-wing legacy that martial arts has become, especially in North America. And then to your question about the Gracies then, right? Yeah. Can, can, you set, can you set the scene a little bit? Who are the Gracies? So the Gracies are this family who are, where the claim is that they invented Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or what they call Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which is really like Judo Nwaza or the ground fighting aspect of Judo. They claim to have like invented it in Brazil. And so they are like what they call the first family of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And a lot of martial arts associations, or I should say a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu associations, their lineage ties back to the, one of the Gracies. And often they'll even put that, it's like a, it's a point of pride for a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners where they'll post that in their bios or on their website. I got my black belt from this person who got this black belt from this person who got it from one of the Gracies. Yeah, it's like a pedigree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even like all the uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu websites that talk about, that do bios, like BJJ Heroes, that do bios of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu people, right at the top, it always has to tell you what the legacy is and how it ties back to Elio Gracie or Carlson Gracie. So I guess you could think of them as like, like who Jigoro Kano would be in judo, which is like the founder of judo or Ushiba in Aikido. Like it's the, the people or Masoyama for Kyokushin Karate, like people who are accredited with creating the style. So that's who they are. But just like uh, the UFC, the UFC is the biggest promoter of MMA, but they are not MMA. The Gracies are the most well-known uh, family in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but they are not Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So that's who they are. Yeah. It, and can, can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, I think that like, what was it? it Felix Biederman's documentary gets into it a little bit if, if folks have seen Fighting in the Age of Loneliness. But, you know, I think that one of the things that that, that documentary tries to show a bit and, and that you kind of find is the idea of the Gracies in the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu community is often like, okay, you know, they're the inventors. They're kind of the beginning. You want to trace your legacy back to them. And the idea is that they basically like, they made it. They're very, very good at it. They are the best at it. They stay the best at it. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you can kind of 
poke at about that is like, what what are the fault lines between being the best at the art or the sport and being the best at promotion and self-promotion, right? And I think I think it's pretty indisputable that the Gracies are definitely the best at promotion, uh, particularly around the time of UFC one, right? This is kind of the beginning in America. But how do we how do we kind of think about and separate out these ideas of what you might call something closer to like merit or genuine merit versus this the perception or the or the promotion of of your merit or yourself and i think that also relates to the ufc hierarchy questions in that you know are we really seeing who the best is or are we seeing who dana white likes and, and wants to set up i would say there's a lot more meritocracy in brazilian jiu-jitsu let's say than other martial arts but that doesn't mean that it is a pure meritocracy which they like to claim and especially like the lineage of it has never been meritocratic it's also an example of how meritocracy doesn't necessarily mean just rule. So I gave you the framework about martial arts in the Americas, especially in North America, and how it was brought here and how it always had this kind of nationalistic, uh, imperialistic element to it, which you spoke of earlier. And I gave the context of how that happened, right? It's always been a cop art. It's always been a military art. Or martial arts in general in the U.S. has always like catered to that demographic. Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular really caters to that. So going back to South America, the Gracies are a Scottish, so they're a white European family. Mm -hmm. They're a rich settler family that moved to Brazil. So I actually did some recent ep episodes about colonialism because that is an, another element that people who care about this stuff, especially martial arts, have to be informed about or educated about. Because when you're talking about martial arts, you're talking about like traditional knowledge of mostly non-American countries. And then we've taken them, brought them here. And a lot of people are exploiting this traditional knowledge for profit. So there is this like colonialist, neo-colonialist element to it, not just capitalistic, right? I mean, capitalism and neo-colonialism is intricately intertwined. But this colonialism aspect of it has to be priced in when we think about martial arts. So going back to the Gracies, then they're the settler family that moved to Brazil. And so they were not only white, but they were rich. So they had access to taking lessons in judo, right? They had more access than other people. Then they created, they didn't create this art. They took an element of this art that they excelled at, but because they were learning as not necessarily adults, but like in their teens, they couldn't catch up to the judo throws. So I guess a little bit of like game theory, then they're like, well, where can I beat them? I could beat them on the ground because we could just focus all of our time on the ground. Whereas judokas are splitting their time between groundwork and standup. So then the Gracies focus more on the ground and then they set up these challenge matches where they changed the rules. So it favored more the ground than uh, the throws. Because initially when they did the challenge matches, the judo people were winning. And then they changed the rules so that it would favor the ground. And then they started winning more. Mm -hmm. But they changed the rules and they had access because of their power and their political power. Because uh, even though the, the Japanese immigrants who were doing this, I don't know, Japan itself was an imperial power. They didn't have the same leverage the Gracies did. And also the, the Gracies, the one who's really accredited with this, Elio Gracie, was part of the Brazilian fascist party at the time, which is called the Integralist Party, which is making a comeback right now. Mm -hmm. So it always had this marriage of this fascism, police, military, and also being an art. 
like unlike other martial arts where it was started by like bottom up poor people trying to fight the rich it was always uh art that catered to the rich and that was started by the rich and catered to the nationalists and the right wing politics yeah and and just just to situate the time period here too i mean because i think that people they might people might be familiar with kind of hoist gracie and and the first ufc and kind of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu's entry into the U.S. marketplace, which was kind of in the 90s, right? But when you're talking about Elio Gracie and these challenge matches in the beginning, what what is the time period that you're talking about in Brazil? This is like around the the rise of fascism in Europe as well. Yeah, so this is like 30s and 40s, right? 30s and 40s, yeah. Yeah, and so and so this is a I mean this is a long lineage, right? It, it existed for a long time. It's a long right wing lineage that's never been meritocratic. Yeah, even the gi itself. So the whole point of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? They're always talking about it's for the street. It's about being realistic. These other martial arts aren't realistic. Then why are you wearing a gi, right? <laughs> you don't walk around in a gi. But why are they wearing the gi? Right. We're not the first, Americans aren't the first ones to ask this question. This came up way back then. And uh, the gi was in itself a way to like make it cost prohibitive. The gis were very expensive. So then only certain people can afford it. And even certain Gracies like Carlson Gracie or other Gracies or other Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioners. So here's the other thing is if you go back to Brazil, there's non-Gracie Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu lineage where the source never touches the Gracies. It goes straight back to Maeda, which is the, the uh, judo instructor. Right. And they still have the same ground techniques. Right. But they just didn't have the money to promote themselves. So there is non-Gracie pure water Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that exists. It's just not as big or powerful as the Gracie lineage. But that shows they weren't the inventors. The real inventors were like Maeda and some of the other uh, Japanese uh, immigrants who came. And a lot of them, going back to pro wrestling, were pro wrestlers. Right. So a lot of the, the techniques came from the pro wrestling submissions mixed with judo. Just to kind of emphasize this point, right? Like, I think it, it would be hard to find a gym in the United States that had any kind of lineage that it touted that wasn't a Gracie lineage. Even though those Gracie lineages exist, they're real, they're in Brazil. This just speaks to the Gracie's power of, of kind of marketing and promotion that, you know, I think that when I moved to LA, I, I went and checked out, you know, three or four different gyms and, and basically all of them had Gracie lineages they could point to, you know, they had portraits of Elio Gracie up on the wall that you bow to at the beginning and end of every class, right? Um, it's really intense. Yeah. And lineage is probably to the worst Gracie of all, and maybe not the worst Gracie, but currently alive worst Gracie, right? Like, which is Henzo Gracie, which if you've seen any of the stuff, there's tons of articles written about him now. It's out in the open. So I'm not saying anything even controversial. All you got to do is Google his name and look up fascism and you'll see tons of articles about him. And so if you're looking around LA, you're like, oh shit, a lot of these schools are directly related to Henzo Gracie, right? And he doesn't even live in LA, but it shows you his reach. And you think about all the things he's done and said, and they're not going to like disavow their lineage because that's how powerful that is. Actually, like the UFC, there is an organization that is like the, not the organizing body, the legitimizing body, which is say, are you a real black belt or not? And that's the IBJJF, which is also run by the Gracies, right? And so if you are like, oh, my lineage is based on a guy who's, who quotes Himmler, I want to leave. Well, then what happens to your black belt? What happens to your le legitimacy? So the IBJJF itself, itself runs like a cartel. So if you try to leave, then you might lose all your students. You might lose your whole business because now under their system, I can't promote anybody. My, my ranking becomes illegitimate because I still have to be under somebody who's like a third degree or second degree, uh, probably third degree, I believe, or higher in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that is legitimized by the IBJJF. And if I'm not there, then I don't, 
I could call myself Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but a lot of people say my school is now no longer legitimate. So there's that monopolistic cartel aspect of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu itself, which all goes back to uh, another Gracie. But the, to, to finish the, my point about Brazil is that the cost prohibitiveness and the racism of it was even apparent back then. So even like certain Gracies who wanted to go against it and teach people of color, teach people from the favelas, which is the poorest parts of Brazil, they had like huge feuds. They had like civil wars within the families. Like Carlson Gracie got kicked out of the family for wanting to teach poor people and black people, which isn't even to say that he's not reactionary himself, but just that one choice affected his lineage to the family. Right. Well, let me ask you this, though, because I think you mentioned other martial arts, you know, so outside of the context of the Gracies specifically, how do you think about this idea of sort of legitimacy and legacy, right? Because I think that this is, there aren't that many areas of life where you see this as starkly as you do with many martial arts in terms of wanting to trace your legacy back to specific people. I mean, the only other place where it is kind of very apparent to me lately, at least, is I've been reading about Sufism, right? Which is kind of like, it's, some people would describe it as like mystical Islam. And in Sufism, there are sects that all trace their lineage back, teacher to teacher to teacher, to specific people, you know, kind of common specific people at the beginning. You know, I think it seems to me like people get some value out of this, that they're, you know, there is value in what are ostensibly hierarchical relationships in these areas where what you're trying to do is is kind of pass down very specific knowledge and the type of knowledge that can't just be kind of written in a book, right? But it it also ends up with these hierarchy-heavy systems that if they're not inevitably going to reproduce abuse, at least are at a severe risk of reproducing abuse. You know, how do you think about this just as a martial artist generally about sort of, you know, deference to the instructor, respect and reverence for instructors going back versus, you know, what what is actually the proper amount of deference and respect and, and what you need to, the attitude that you need to affect in order to learn? Let me ask you that question. Yeah. Because one of the first things I, I noticed about your profile is it says anti-hierarchy. Yeah. Right. On Twitter. And so... Now that I know you train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or have trained it, like as somebody who's anti-hierarchical, how do you feel about that system? Like being in a system that is so lineage, legacy, and hierarchical? I mean, look, I got to not deal with it for a long time. And you know, the, the, the most recent period during which I was training was when I lived in, in D.C. and in Silver Spring, Maryland. Actually, I was, I was training at a place called Beltway Martial Arts um, with Nick Robeson. And, you know, I think that was probably the most anti-hierarchical gym I've ever been to, right? You know, like Nick was Nick. He wasn't a professor or master or sensei or anything. You know, we had some sort of principles that we followed that that we read at the beginning of every class, but it was basically like, oh, you know, self-defense only. I'm not going to use this to abuse anybody. I, I actually don't know Nick's pedigree, so to say. I'm sure that there is one, right? Mm. I know who he got his black belt from, but I don't know who that, but that's just because that guy was like still around. I don't know who that guy got his black belt from. And so I think it was actually a little bit shocking to me when I moved out West and I was going around and and checking out gyms and it was so much more in your face. You know, it was like, um, you know, absolutely you do not refer to people by their first name. You don't even refer to the person who's, let alone, even if they're not a black belt, you know, if they're just teaching the class, it's coach versus professor, right? I was a little bit taken aback by it. And, you know, I mostly stopped training because of COVID. So I haven't really been been back and I haven't had to grapple with it too much. But it's something that, you know, this time last year was was weighing on me really heavily. 
and I don't think that I've come to any kind of any revelations or conclusions about it. But here you are, you know, you've been in this in multiple different contexts, I assume, for for a much longer period of time. Yeah. So that's actually the perfect backdrop then to discuss your question, right? And for you right now, you this is a question that you have to like think about, right? Like as somebody who has left politics, how do I think about this? And this type of weirdness that is modern martial arts, it's hard to wrap your mind around and you know it's hard to even like navigate and think about it, especially when you enjoy it too. Right. So you're like, well, well then what are the parts I enjoy? There's like something I enjoy about it, but it's also like things I don't like about it. And that goes against my politics. So the backdrop of where you trained before in the East Coast versus here, LA is LA. LA things need to make money. So it shows you how, I mean, the other one is a capitalistic business, but capitalism is on steroids out here. So then you could see how that type of like hierarchy and lineage becomes even more important when making money is even more important. You see schools who are like really laid back and they don't, they, they'll even say, look, I don't care about lineage and all that stuff. Just come in and roll and we're just going to focus on our principles and we don't care about all that other stuff. Then they'll even tell you sometimes, yeah, we're not even, I don't even care about making money. I'm just doing this because I love it. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're even like unconsciously letting you know that caring about all that stuff is part of making money and is part of capitalism. So you come out here when the incentive to make money is even higher then all those things come into place even more. So then this is where we have to connect all the orthodoxy and the vestige and even like the, the caricatures of martial arts, how that's intrinsically tied to capitalism. So you talk about like professor or master, it's actually all very false hierarchy, which is that unlike here, like professor is a college professor here, and sensei just means teacher in, in uh, Japan versus sensei here doesn't mean just teacher. No. It's something more honorable, something more uplifted, right? Same thing with professor. In Brazil, professor just means teacher, whereas here now, professor means like, we think, we think of something very high yeah, and grandiose. Vaulted. Same thing with master. Mm-hmm. Master is not even a term from Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I don't even know why they started using it. They never used that term up until like five years ago. And then all of a sudden, that's completely constructed and fabricated because there's no history of that because they came from judo and in judo you don't you don't call like somebody like master blah 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 you call them sensei blah 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 right so they created that here to create a false history a false like not lineage but a false like sense of orthodoxy or tradition that it never had it's so loaded too i mean you could see for someone who would come in and they'd be like oh oh call some master like that's a little master is uncomfortable like that's a very loaded term in the united states but oh you know maybe it's a Maybe it's a broad historical term. Maybe it's imported from another tradition. And then you learn, oh, wait, no, they actually just chose this here recently. <laughs> yeah. So as other arts are even like trying to stop using that term, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is one of the younger arts, is like, no, we're going to start using yeah. that for the first time. So this is all like speaks to how like marketing has is influencing tradition and legacy and, and rewriting the past. And you talk about hierarchy and lineage and Sufism. A lot of that person-to-person transferring of traditional knowledge is about cultural exchange. So it's about like, I want my culture to keep living on, so I pass it on to the next person. So this is something you might hear about from indigenous cultures, or even like if I'm an Asian American, I come here and I, I start taking Taekwondo. And the way I take Taekwondo from a Korean teacher is different from Taekwondo from the mall, from somebody else, because they're going to teach me a lot about Korean culture on top of the martial arts. So my parents would want me to like get that cultural exchange. So then like 
who was my teacher, who was my teacher's teacher, all of that matters because then it doesn't tie back to the to the original person. It ties back to the original country. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Whereas with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mixed martial arts doesn't have that cultural tradition, doesn't have that cultural exchange. So it's completely constructed. So they're they're missing the whole point of that lineage. The lineage was for cultural reasons, and now they're using lineage in an oppressive right-wing way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's both marketing and it's market consolidation, and it's also probably like a little bit of uh, sort of like Orientalism, right? Like they're trying to yeah. introduce some aspect that'll make people think that it's, that it's exotic or something. I, I mean, I do think that like, you know, there is something in the student-teacher relationship in, in many places, but particularly in martial arts, which does require like a very high degree of trust. You know, you have to trust both that, you know, this is a person who obviously by the nature of your relationship, like has some power over you. Like if you got in a fight, you would lose. Actually, let's unpack that. They have power in two ways. Yeah. Meaning they could physically, they have physical power over you, meaning like they could literally take your hands and make you punch yourself in the face. They have that power. And then they also have authoritative power, meaning like mental space in your mind yeah. of where you venerate them. Right. Absolutely. And, and they have power in terms of, you know, sort of dictating the, the relationships with the other people around you at the gym. You know, it, it, is a, it is a power relationship necessarily. And I would think that it's still a valuable relationship. And in order to have a, uh, a power imbalance and a valuable relationship, there has to be a high degree of trust. And it seems to me like a lot of the sort of venerative rituals are sort of mimicking some idea, some performance of trust between student and teacher. But I think that that it just is so, so, so easy to kind of cross the line from a sort of mutual trust and respect to to a, a very exploitive relationship. And that's why, I mean, you know, as you were kind of mentioning earlier, like there have been revelations about a few different kind of big time Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructors recently uh, engaging in like sexual exploitation of their students, which I think, you know, unfortunately isn't, isn't too surprising, but just this it feels i don't know i mean when you think about it from the outside it feels very inevitable but thinking about it from the inside like oh my god that's just so uh, kind of gut-wrenching right because it really it's yeah. just such a, a personal intimate trusting relationship that you have to have it's even worse in a way right yeah. because you know it then you know how vulnerable you have to be yeah then they didn't exploit somebody uh just some regular person let's say who is not in a vulnerable position. You took somebody who was in the most, most, most vulnerable position where they're like, here's my neck. I trust you not to kill me, right? right? Every time we drill a, a choke, you're not practicing on a dummy. You're practicing on your partner. That partner has to trust you not to kill them. Like when you tap, you let go. So then this person, in a way, the teacher has conditioned you to always trust them with your life. And then they do this to you. So I would say it's even worse than the way it happens in the general public because they are in such a, a powerful position to exploit. That's why like when teachers do it or when priests do it, it's even worse yeah. than the general public because it is somebody that was given even extra trust, extra vulnerability. But you think about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and all the things that like can lead themselves to this exploitation happening where you're constantly being conditioned. You're not only just with the tap, you have to trust them, but also like there's these arcane rituals that are also constructed, that are also invented here in the U.S., like the belt whipping ritual. Mm -hmm. And say what the so say what the belt whipping ritual is. So the belt whipping ritual, which looking at your facial expression, it sounds like you know, oh, right? Yeah. Which is to speak to how how normal this is. This is across the board. A lot 
it would be more uncommon that you don't do this. But it's every time you get promoted to a new belt, you do something called the gauntlet where everybody lines up two lines and you walk through slowly with your hands like in a position where you can't block. And then they whip you with the belt. You tie that whipping to even calling people master. It just has, a, there's a lot of problems with this, but you go through this every time, not only you as the abuser or the, or the whipper, but you receive it as well. And then you thank everybody at the end, right? That does something that conditions you is it's a form of hazing. The inventor of it is actually from California, Chris Howder, who got it from the military, from military hazing. This is what inspired him because he thought that would create like more conforming students, more students who would be willing to listen to you, right? So the intent was always fucked up, which now even the person who invented it wishes he never invented it because it got, it got even worse than what he thought it was going to be, right? So you have rituals like that. You have like now bringing back things like professor, master. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, how it was initially framed as different from other martial arts, it was supposed to be more horizontal. It's supposed to be more about merit, mm -hmm. right? And now it's, it's not about that. I haven't heard people talk about this horizontalism in years. So then it, it trains people to almost like, uh, it's like consent under duress, mm -hmm. where it's like, even if it seemingly seems like they're consenting, they're not. Like in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and martial arts, it's very normal and common to see a teacher dating or married to one of their students. And then you find out that they didn't meet outside of here. And then the person got into martial arts, they met in the dojo. And it's like, that's always no, yeah. because your, your power dynamic is never right. And that's very common. So there's a lot of elements to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and all of martial arts, a lot of martial arts that caters to that, where it doesn't, it, you can't do that. You can't do this type of sexual assault overnight. You have to prime them for years and then it can happen. It's not like they're necessarily uh, with a specific intent of priming you for sexual assault. It's more like a lot of that is already built into the art. And then it makes it very easy for sexual predators then to exploit that. Right. Well, you know, and I feel like I, I feel like we've been we've been being kind of like negative and drawing out the worst of this stuff. But I, I do want to say this is part of the reason why I really appreciate, you know, your podcast and, and the work that you've been doing and the folks that you've been talking to, because one of the things that, that you do very well is highlighting the fact that, like, although there are these problems, although there are these, you know, toxic power dynamics and a, a lot of aspects of really unfortunate history like there is a whole community of people out here trying to do it better, right? And being thoughtful and applying their principles to training and to training others and to running gyms. And so I think that's like a, a huge service that your podcast has been doing. Yeah, I often think about punk music. Mm -hmm. I, I look to punk a lot and I think about liberation theology. Mm -hmm. Like punk especially has been like inundated with racists and uh, neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And then punk itself from within is trying to expunge them, right? Mm -hmm. Skinheads weren't initially racist, but then they got co-opted. So a lot of the biggest, the people who call out the racism within punk who have the loudest voices are people within punk. So it's not outsiders. It's like people within who are the, the, the goodies, you know? Yeah, Nazi skinheads fuck off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're taking the fight. And they're being the loudest about it. And they're also being the most vocal about talking about the problems, right? And it should be them. So then there is this very passionate vocal uh, who aren't, they don't allow their, their bias of punk music to make them be apologists. In fact, their love of punk is why they're willing to call it out without any bias. And I feel like we're coming from that tradition as well. A lot of people see what I'm saying and think, 
I must come from like not martial arts. So I don't know martial arts. And it's like, I've been doing this since I was six. I know it better than most people. And I've been, and what's also unique is I never stop. So very, some people like do it for a period and they stop. It's like, I've been doing it consistently and continuously since I was six. So you know, what I learned from martial arts very early on is like, you always have to like question your system and try to improve upon it. So this self-criticism is something that stuck with me. So I always felt like it has to come from within. Same thing with like liberation theology. They're the ones who call out Christian supremacy and all of the problems in, in Christianity the most, right? It's coming from within. And I, I actually think that is something the general left needs to get better about is about self-criticism. Instead of even like calling out other tendencies or other like types of like leftists or progressives, like, no, look at yourself. You should be the first one. Because you know it so well, then you should be the first one to criticize it. It's like Stephanie Kelton can criticize inflation because she knows it better than anybody else, right? right? Going back to your MMT series. Right. And that's something I, I, I've even like stumped academics on where I say like, yeah, so it's like you should be the one criticizing your own tendency the most to make sure it's good, right? And a lot of them is like, they pause for like a long time. And then I could tell they've never thought about that. They're so used to attacking the other tendencies or attacking liberals or conservatives, but never questioning themselves. Right. I think another commonality also is, is like the self-criticism and also the criticism from, from love, right? Like this is both true of punk, it's true of liberation theology. Like I'm sure it's, it, it's true of, of what you're doing with martial arts, which is that you're coming from a place of like, I, I love this thing and I want it to be better, right? I love this thing and I want to make it good rather than coming at something from the outside, really. I think that actually makes a, a really big difference in in both how you approach it and, and how you can possibly be received, right? It's not like someone can tell you that you're anti-martial arts or something. Like, you you love this shit. You lived it. Yeah. I mean, that's the difference. Also, if it comes from, uh, from the outside, then the intent is to destroy it, right? Like, when I'm coming from the outside, I'm like saying this institution needs to no longer exist. Whereas if I'm coming from the inside, I'm saying and I'm being the most critical, then I'm saying there is something here worthy of being saved. Right. And we need to get rid of all the other stuff and try to save the parts that are good. And like I said, whenever I've questioned about like, are there good aspects of it? I just have to speak to my community, the people who follow me, who people who listen to the podcast, and they talk about how important this is, like materially to their survival, yeah. you know? Yeah. Martial arts is important for a lot of people to just survive and not get killed or just to take up space, right? Uh, you know, there's a lot of like subtle jujitsu you need to do if you want to like take up space in a seat, right? <laughs> or like take up space in a way where like, um, you know, when somebody's hovering over you, you know, if you know a little bit about Muay Thai or whatever, you, you can stand in a way where unconsciously they feel like, oh, okay, I shouldn't take up their space, where it, it isn't so so blatant. Okay, well, I think I think we've gone longer than, than we planned to. But Sam, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been a, a, a really, really fun conversation. Um, and I hope that everyone listening will, will go check out Southpaw Podcast. Do you have any other things that you want to plug? No, just the podcast. Everything. The podcast itself has become more than a podcast. It's kind of become a project. Mm -hmm. The podcast is kind of like this media hub and the social media is like this media hub. But we're connected to like so many different martial arts groups, anti-fascist groups, and left-wing groups and sports groups that are like trying to utilize our reach to like spread some of their message. So supporting us isn't just supporting the podcast, it's supporting all these different efforts amongst not just martial artists, but anti-fascists and people who are trying to like unionize and organize sports. This podcast has connected a lot of groups, I think mainly because it started so much before everybody else. Yeah. 
and because of the format of like willing to talk to so many different types of people. So yeah, just supporting us, supporting the podcast will support so many other endeavors and projects. Yes. So go find Sam, Southpaw Podcast uh, on Twitter at Southpaw Pod, Patreon, go support them on Patreon. Sam, your, your handle is, yeah, what's your handle? Stuff from Sam. Highly recommend a follow there. All right. Thanks again. And uh, we will see you all soon. Thank you.